Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Toni Morrison said, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you must write it. Robert Jones Jr. has done just that with his novel, The Prophets, written with lyricism that honors the style of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. The author joins us now via Zoom ahead of his online event tomorrow with Karis Books. Robert Jones Jr., welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. A tender beautiful love story is central to this novel. How is the story of Isaiah and Samuel, your response to Toni Morrison's encouragement? Yes, it is indeed. And the reason Isaiah and Samuel exist is because when I was an undergrad, I was a Africana studies minor. I majored in creative writing. And I read so many fabulous works by wonderful Black authors, from slave narratives to books on race theory. And something struck me as odd, which was prior to the Harlem Renaissance, there were never any mention of any Black queer figures. And I, I wanted to address that in some way. So I did a ton of research. And the only references I could ever find prior to Harlem Renaissance time, was in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, which is a slave narrative, where she, in one sentence, very briefly, describes the assault of a male slave by a slave master. And then in Toni Morrison's Beloved, the character Paul D is sexually assaulted by an overseer. And from those observations came a question, what about love? And Samuel was born first and then Isaiah from that one question. Theirs is a love story for the ages. And in fact, that love story reminded me of the love story at the center of If Beale Street Could Talk. Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, 
this is a dynamic duo, to put it mildly. And in addition to your tributes to them, there are things that pop up which I was hoping you would discuss, such as the significance of the color blue. I wondered if that was in any way a reference to the bluest eye. Perhaps subconsciously, but more at the forefront of my mind in using the color blue was the idea of the blues. So a combination of the dynamic duo, whether it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. And in addition, the, the bluesy voice, because when I was writing this book, I listened to a lot of old gospel music, so stuff by like Mahalia Jackson. And I also listened to very old blues, so I was listening to a lot of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And those voices imbue a type of secret, illicit joy, but also a sorrow that the color blue matches. And so perhaps somewhere inside me that that message took hold. And here I was writing all of these different types of blues, whether it's um, the color of the flowers or the color of the ceremonial garb of some of the people in the African chapters, blue found its way in there. Hmm. Interwoven with the story of Isaiah and Samuel are sections written in the voices of seven ancestors. I'm curious about the structure of the novel. Would you talk about how you titled chapters after books of the Bible, but they don't exactly correspond to the narratives we know? When I was in the process of writing, I was in an early draft and I keep a, a notepad and a pen by my bed in the event that something comes to me and I have to write it down because I'll never remember it in the morning, no matter how many times I told myself, just say it out loud, you'll remember it. I never do. So one morning, it was maybe two or three in the morning, I woke up out of a dream and I wrote down something on a pad and I don't even remember what it was that I wrote down. It was in the dark. I scribbled it out and went back to sleep. When I woke up the next morning and took my pad back to my home office to look at what I'd written and, and enter it in, there was a line that said, you do not yet know us. And I thought, but that's a direct address. That's not going with anything that I have previously written. And from that, I said, well, maybe there needs to be chapters that have a direct address. But who would be who would be talking? Who who would have the right to talk directly to the reader or directly to me or directly to the other characters in this way? And the answer to that was only the ancestors would have that right. And from that, one of the chapters that I had written in the ancestral voice, they said, This is not the beginning, but this is where we shall begin. That was a question I kept asking myself, well, where shall we begin? And that's when I was led to talk about chapters that take place in pre-colonial Africa. And once I wrote those chapters that took place in pre-colonial Africa, I realized there is a distinction between this Africanist point of view and this Western point of view. 
And how can I play up that distinction? And one of the ways was in naming and in understanding that the rift that occurs between what we were in these African societies and what we were when we were enslaved was Christianity. And I realized by titling these chapters by books of the Bible, and sometimes not by books of the Bible, but biblical concepts, really impacted the way in which I approached writing those particular chapters, how Christianity and spirituality um, informed each of those chapters, and how in some ways the characters did and did not correspond. Either they subverted the biblical um, text or they followed the biblical text upon being named. To say that's multi-layered, again, is putting it mildly. One of, one of the most striking aspects of the novel is how you convey the enslaved people's determination to hold on to or even try to know about their past. Isaiah asks Samuel if he ever wonders where his mother might be and says, maybe when you look in the river, her face is what you see. And then Isaiah tells Samuel about a memory of reaching out for his mother and father and wonders I'm quoting here, if he is not just reaching for his mam and pappy, but also for all those faded people who stood behind them, whose names, too, were lost forever, whose blood nourished the ground and haunted it. Would you please tell us about the importance of a connection to the past for these characters? It is, quite frankly, the yearning for connection that all descendants of enslaved people feel. Because we were cut off from the thing that is the origin of our thing. And I think Toni Morrison was the one that said, all orf orphans are insatiable. And I'm not sure if that's blatantly true, but I do know that when you are someone who you don't know who your ancestors were, you can only guess at it because your ancestors didn't have birth certificates. They were listed as property along with animals and furniture in records kept by plantation owners. You long to know more about these people who withstood so that you could be here. It, it is overwhelming to think about the fact that my ancestors suffered untold brutality and survived it just so that I could be here writing this book today. I am in awe of that. I feel a tremendous responsibility for that. And I imagined that these characters who were in this lost place, enduring these unspeakable acts, only wondered and fantasized and hoped that they could find, when they escaped it, where they actually belonged. And the first step to that is to wonder, where are my parents? Who loved me? Who brought me here? Who I was snatched from? 
And that's, that's where Samuel and Isaiah are. But it's also kind of frightening because to think about it and then to not know or to know that you may never receive an answer to that question is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to read, but we must. I was hoping you would read some passages. I asked him, the old dog voices, about you. They say you write proud, on your way to becoming a man yourself. Got a lot of your people in you, but don't know it yet. And quick, maybe too quick for your own good. I surprise you still living. I ask them, I say, can you take a message to him? Tell him I remember every curl on his head and every fold on his body down to the creases between his toes. Tell him not even the whip can remedy that. Oh. Okay, so I started crying on page four. I have a soaked copy of The Prophets in front of me, Robert. I'm so sorry. So, no, don't be. It's, it's marvelous. What can you tell us about blood memory? Blood memory is a concept that I was introduced to in my studies in Africana studies at Brooklyn College as an undergrad, where um, it is sort of like this part mystical, part real idea that we actually carry the memories of our ancestors passed down to us through our very blood, that our cells themselves hold on to the memories that we think have been lost to time. That if we're, we are still and we are quiet in our meditative spaces, we can actually remember things that did not happen to us, but happened to these ancestors that they willed into their bodies and passed down to us such that we will always know. That is blood memory. And in fact, at one point you write, who knew blood could talk? The ancestors say, return to memory when you are filled with doubt. Is this what they are referring to? Yes. And they also say, but memory is not enough. And that is their way of saying, you now in this new place must do additional things to ensure that we are not forgotten. You must speak, you must write down, you must do. Because memory, while that is the thing that we gave to you, we realize it is not enough. Samuel and Isaiah first encounter each other as children. How would you describe each of them? Samuel is a much more rugged individual. He is a little bit more angry a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more uncomfortable with the intense love he feels for Isaiah. Isaiah, on the other hand, is, although chained, utterly free. He finds in his love for Samuel the ultimate liberation. He loves without, without fear. He loves 
without limit. And his intimacy is deep. There is no shame with Isaiah. There is, he doesn't even understand the concept of shame. And the two of them together, as Maggie calls them, the two of them represent this fraught, but highly passionate and nigh unbreakable bond. And I just wanted to examine the complications and the deep um, intimacy of the two with those sort of, they, they're sort of the yin and yang of each other. And they, 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 they are in many ways opposites, but could not function without each other. Yeah. Samuel emanated strength, yet detachment from others, not from Isaiah. And Isaiah has this soothing presence. He smiles. He was sweet with a friend's baby, though later you write, it was the curse of the soft ones to suffer in all but silence. So his ability to articulate, in fact, makes him feel remorse even greater. Yes. Um, isn't that the way of the world? We, we live in such a fraught, often hard and violent world, and it's those who feel um, the, the most empathetic among us that suffer the most. We see and feel other people's pain in addition to our own, and that is hard. That's a hard existence to live in a world that can be so callous. You mentioned Maggie, the character of Maggie, as she referred to Samuel and Isaiah as the two of them, uppercase. And I have to tell you, I was especially drawn to the character of Maggie. What is her role in the prophets? Everyone who has read this book tells me that Maggie is their favorite. Maggie is not just the maternal, not just the mystical, but also the, the moral core of this novel, I think. She does things for herself first, but then she battles that with the love she feels for others. So there's, there's this tug of war within her. She hates being in the kitchen to cook for people who abuse her. So she takes small pieces of vengeance. Um, and she hates the idea of children, black children, being born on a plantation because she knows what they're about to endure. And yet, in the two of them, her heart opens against her will. She is also, um, crucial in the protection of certain people, I don't want to give much away, on this plantation. And she is also crucial because she is one of the few that remember the old ways and is not wrapped by the, the new ways. And she is also the one that unites the women so that they too can remember the old ways. She is my favorite character, although I love Samuel and Isaiah. Mackie said about Samuel and Isaiah's relationship that it was something old from 
the other time. And this seems a good time to talk about the story of King Akusa. King Akusa may be, at least at this current moment, my favorite character. And the one that I would most like to return to in, in some other form in, or in some other day. But it was my research into pre-colonial Africa that led me to including these sorts of chapters in the prophets. Because what I learned, most importantly through oral histories, so for example, Esther Arma, who is an artist activist from Ghana, informed us that, because we have this sense among Black communities that homosexuality or queerness or whatever name we wish to use for it, is something that's the result of trauma, the result of European colonialism, that was something not natural to the African landscape. But that is patently false. As Arma tells us, if you asked her grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would say, I don't know. But if you described what you meant by homosexuality, they'd say, oh, yes, that is such and such and such and such who are in love with each other. We have no term to separate it because it is just love or it is just sex. Because in her tribes, love and sex were, were like land. There were no boundaries. And so I wanted to talk about how in some African societies, gender was seen as something wholly different from how we think of it in, in Western societies. That queerness was a normal part of the landscape that came right up out of nature, not something to be thought of as sinful as um, would later be interpreted with Christian missionaries. And so King Akusa and her tribe and her society is me bringing in those elements, those factual elements, but giving them a fantastical sort of rendition. And what I found is what you see in these chapters that King had no gender attachment to it. It just meant leader. And whatever the sex of the person who occupied that position is, is King. And so King Akusa is a woman. In fact, you write, girl is the beginning, everything else determined by soul. And because King Akusa believes fierceness should always be tempered with kindness, she invites the visitors she receives, a white man, Brother Gabriel, accompanied by neighboring villagers. She invites them to attend a grand celebration, a wedding of two young men. What does this portion of the story reveal, Robert? Are these two young men, Kosi and Ilua, the earlier incarnation of Samuel and Isaiah? I'm sure that it could be interpreted that way. But from the author behind the curtain, it was really me trying to reveal a concept that I learned in my research from one of the tribes, I believe they're called the Dagara tribe, where queer men were considered guardians of the gates, of the spiritual gates. And they were given a special place in the society. They were considered wiser 
and they were more revered, almost royalty, but not quite. And Kosai and Alewa are representative of that concept, of that celebratory look at queer men in this pre-colonial African society, where in some of these societies, there were ceremonies that what we call weddings, they were not precisely weddings, they were wedded in a particular way, but it wasn't a wedding like we think of it in terms of matrimony. And I wanted to represent that as contrast to how Samuel and Isaiah's love is looked at with skepticism and um, revulsion, and how even in modern times, the idea of gay marriage is looked upon as unbiblical or ungodly. At a terrible moment later in the story, the character of Sarah reflects, it seemed that it had always fallen upon the women to be the head or the heart, to throw the first spear, to shoot the first arrow, to clear the first path, to live the first life. Robert, I must tell you, Stacey Abrams came to mind when I read that passage. <laughs> that about being the head or the heart, although she would never pick up a weapon other than arming people to go out and vote, if there is such a metaphor for that. Were you being contemporary in your regard for women there? That is really a good question. I guess to some sense, I was being contemporary in that I think about people like Shirley Chisholm and the aforementioned Stacey Abrams and all of the Black women in Georgia who, is, who were doing that deep dive work. I think about people like Ava DuVernay. I, I think about people like Janet Jackson. Um, I think about all of these Black women who innovate and endure but also I was thinking about something old. And that's how these stories of, of black women's resistance are often erased from the, the master narrative, as Toni Morrison would put it, where we don't have very many stories other than you know Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth that really delve into the role black women played in the liberation of black people in this country. And I wanted to pay homage to that, and I wanted to honor that by talking about how so often it is, as Ella Baker once put it, the charismatic masculine patriarch who is afforded the leadership role or, or is thought of as the person that we should listen to and who we should follow. And it's never the woman that we think about in that, in that sort of way, no matter how genius no matter how much of a strategist, no matter how brilliant she is. And I wanted to kind of turn the tables a bit and to pay honor to those women who, in my own life, the elder women in my family who have paved the way. Author Robert Jones Jr. will return with more about his new book, The Prophets, after a quick break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. We're back with the author Robert Jones Jr. His new book, The Prophets, is a love story of two enslaved men in antebellum Mississippi. Here, we're discussing a part of the book when the benevolent leader of an African people, King Akusa, is speaking with a visitor, Brother Gabriel, a white man from Portugal, whom she invited to a celebration, a wedding ceremony of two men. Hearing about Christianity from Brother Gabriel is difficult for King Akusa to understand. Gabriel can't comprehend same-sex love, tells her it's sodomy, and heaven seems strange to King Akusa. She says, what an unusual place that doesn't open its gates for its own guard. How do you address the spiritual beliefs carried from African lands in contrast to Christianity in the prophets? What I realized about the pre-colonial spiritual ideas is that they were closely tied to family, that these godlike figures, uh, for lack of, of, of a better term, were not hovering over these pre-colonial Africans in a way that Jehovah hovers over modern day people. Here in in these pre-colonial African societies, these are people that you have already loved, that have loved you, who cannot wait to embrace you again, to to sit you down at the table and, and, and break bread. These are not angry, giant sky deities who hold lightning in their palm and wish to do you harm if you don't do everything as they say, precisely as they say, hidden under the superficial cover of choice. There is a distinctly different manner about spirituality between um, pre-colonial African societies and Western societies in that the goal isn't punishment in pre-colonial African societies, it's enlightenment. Whereas Western societies and Western religions, there always seems to be this central component of punishment. Hmm. This would be the time to introduce the character Amos, an older enslaved man on the plantation. A complex character, and at least for me, very easy to dislike. What is his attitude towards Samuel and Isaiah? Actually, he loves them, but he is frustrated because he's put in a very precarious position. He has to get them to not be what they are in order to save someone else. That's, that's 
all I will reveal about that. Um, and he's frustrated by the fact that they won't give up their individualism for the group. He understands, in a way, that's the tragedy, that he's going to have to be the one to destroy what even he himself believes is beautiful. Hmm. Would you talk about your use of myth and reality in the prophets? I was hoping you'd talk about myth and reality. Absolutely. You know, when I think about fiction, I think about something that Toni Morrison said about it. She said, fiction is not fact, but it is truth. And that helped to free me in telling this story in a way that wasn't necessarily held by reality. Like I, I didn't necessarily have to ensure, I have to make sure that this, this, this represents corporeal reality, otherwise I'd lose the reader. I'm able to expand beyond the limits of reality to reveal something that, that you feel in your gut is true. So yes, perhaps this is magical realism, and I'm certain that Morrison's influence and even the influence of Marquez plays a role in, in some of how I decided to write this, how I decided to combine myth and reality. And the way that myth often functions in this book is it's to give you a reprieve from the dogged, brutal reality of it. It is to allow the characters flights of fancy so that they can, too, become fuller, more realized characters outside of the, of the violence that they can have a kind of beauty and a respite from it, a reprieve, and something to dream about. It was necessary that they had something to dream about. Yeah, because your readers bear witness to a vivid depiction of the horrific conditions on the slave ship and the plantation. You also convey insight to the enslaved psyche. For example, when Maggie realizes, what chance did she have against that kind of power removed as she was from the land where she should have been born and the people she should have been born to? Robert, what informs the way you depict the characters' thoughts and feelings to their situation? You know, a lot of it is from my own family's oral and discovered history. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, Ruby, her youngest brother, Herbert, my great uncle, Herbert, did our family tree and discovered or uncovered a beautiful tradition that I, I am a part of and I didn't even know. All of the firstborn boys in my family are named Robert. And I, I was not sure why. It was because the, the very first ancestor, Robert, died on a passage from England to the United States to, to Savannah, where, where my um, father's family is from. And in tribute, his younger brother named his first son Robert, and every firstborn boy down to me is named Robert. That gives me 
a tremendous sense of responsibility about thinking about what that first Robert endured. So such that he left such an impression that his brother said, I am going to name my firstborn son Robert, told his son that he must name his first son, born son Robert, all the way down to my father and to, then to me. Mercy, have mercy. I can't help but think about that pain, that joy, all of that richness of, of, of family. And when I, I write about these characters, I, I listen to them. I am their witnesses. I am writing down their testimonies. And so I must pay the utmost respect. I must use the best active listening I know how. And I must write down whatever, what I, whatever I hear, whether it is beautiful or whether it is ugly, as long as it is true. And I think in that it renders them full and rich and dimensional. Nearing the end of the prophets, we come to a chapter titled Numbers. It's barely a page and a half long, but extremely dense in content. Please explain what follows the opening sentence, We are the seven. We are the seven sent to watch over you. What is required of you is to look up and remember the star. I'm dealing with here in some metaphorical way, stories that my maternal grandfather, Alfred, used to tell me when I was a kid. He was um, almost a lifelong member of the Nation of Islam. He died when he was um, 96 in, in the year 2013. And he used to tell me these stories about Egypt and the pyramids and how they lined up with stars and how we built those pyramids um, using ancient mathematics in ways that not even modern societies can understand how to recreate. And that's just me playing with those concepts of blackness as powerful, blackness as um, engineer, blackness as enduring, and also paying homage to who those ancestors are, the, the seven in particular, as they relate to this novel. I don't want to reveal for the readers who these seven are, but they should figure it out by the time they get to this chapter. <laughs> yes. Um, um, that is them being playful with those sort of old Black cultural symbolism. Yeah. Because of its setting in time and place, this story is not easy to read. Yet there's something very uplifting about how the life force prevails in the prophets. Would you please read the passage beginning, his people had that in them. His people had that in them more than Paul's, to abide more, rejoice more, revere more, surrender more climb on top of a golden pyre and burn more. He had seen it in the circle of trees, the way his people swayed, the way they rocked, the way they offered themselves up willingly to the cloudy sky above, and the way they sang in, in a harmony that wasn't rehearsed because people who shared the same bitter lot connected in ways unseen by nature. 
Robert Jones Jr., thank you very much. Lois, thank you so much for having me. This has been a complete and utter joy. Robert Jones's debut novel is The Prophets. More information about the book and the author's online event with Karis Books today will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a conversation with the Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. When it comes to costume design, Ruth E. Carter is a rock star. She has been Spike Lee's go-to costume designer since 1988, having worked on 14 of his films. Carter has collaborated with several of today's most acclaimed directors, and in 2019, she became the first black woman to receive an Academy Award for Best Costume Design, that for her work on the movie Black Panther. Her artistry is the focus of a new exhibition, Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, on view now at Scat Fash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta. Also featured in the exhibition is artwork of SCAD alumnus and Atlanta-based artist Brandon Sadler, who worked on the Black Panther scenic art. It is such a pleasure to welcome Ruth E. Carter and Brandon Sadler. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Oh, such a treat. Ruth, I read that you originally wanted to pursue acting in college. What led you to switch to costume design? Well, uh, costume design was the consolation prize. I didn't make an audition at in college for a play I wanted to be uh, acting in. And so the director of the play asked me if I wanted to try in my hand at uh, costuming. And I said yes, and it stuck. Well, the rest is history. And in fact, you made history. You won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in Black Panther. When did your interest in Afrofuturism design begin? I believe uh, wholeheartedly that uh, as a filmmaker working with Spike Lee, we were embodying our Afro future. When I think of uh, Spike Lee or Ava DuVernay on their sets directing their stories about uh, African-American history and having purpose and telling an authentic story it's telling a, a story of Afro future. They are experiencing their personal Afro future and they're, they're looking to better the lives of, of a culture and tell stories that are you know, more rooted in authenticity than have been told before. And by the time we get to 
Black Panther and were able to take hard science and infuse it in into African culture and tribal culture and uh, retrain the viewer's eye to see beauty in things that they were a little afraid or shy about and to bring that right home with a superhero uh, that they all could aspire to be like. It was the culmination of my entire life's work. Wow. And you had quite a bit of impressive work. How many films in total are to your credit? I have not counted. IMDb says 65, but I can't believe I've done that many. Oh, wow. Now, Brandon, you also have a special connection to Black Panther. Would you talk about your contribution to the film? Uh, Yes, I was hired to do some murals for the set. There's a character, um, Shuri, she's uh, T'Challa's sister. And in her laboratory, she's a scientist and she has this tower and I've decorated the the facade of the tower and and some peripheral pieces around in the the laboratory. And Ruth, I read that that was a particular favorite of yours on the set. Yes, uh, Hannah Beekler, who was the production designer, she came over to our workshop at uh, Screen Gems, and she said, Ruth, you've got to come and see this mural that this artist, Brandon Sadler, did. And I saw it, and I just thought it was just beautiful, and it really spoke to the spirit of Shuri and the spirit of the film, and Um, I had designed this bright orange vest for her to wear and in that setting. And it just was like kismet. We all were on the same page. And I, I, you know, Brandon at that time, he doesn't even know. He's so shy about it. I was like, (laughs) you're my superhero. You like helped me sell that vest to the producers. You don't even realize it. Oh, wow. I, you know, I was so excited to meet Brandon. And when I finally did, I felt like he was a little brother. I have brothers who paint. And so watching him paint on, you know, the set was thrilling to see. Oh, the whole family's artistic then. Well, they all think they are. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the costumes in Black Panther. Ruth, how did you approach making the costumes true to the Afrofuturistic style as well as breathable and easy for the actors to move in? There are a lot of fight scenes in that movie. Yeah, well, superhero films have a formula, and they do start with Euro Jersey, and it's a four-way stretch material that allows you to create a skin-tight suit that will also move and breathe. There's a lot of techniques involved that uh, include technology, and I just push the needle. Um, I brought fashion into the Marvel Universe in a different way with Black Panther. And I love fashion and I love I love incorporating true style into the costumes. And so I'm always looking for ways to move us forward and bring in technology that's innovative from the fashion industry. Yeah. Brandon, what can you tell us about the artwork you created for this show? How would you describe this exhibition of your works? 
when Ruth was talking about the vest that uh, kind of matched up with what I did on the set, I kind of, I feel like in my work, I approach it like on, on an intuitive level and it seems like it, uh, it matches up with whatever it is that I'm collaborating with or the project has a, a greater hold. And so with Ruth's movies that she w worked for, like each costume has a specific genre and a, and a time period. So I just kind of took the mask that I did for Black Panther and, you know, for Do the Right Thing, like I kind of gave him an 80s vibe, you know, just with the, the way the expressions were and kind of some of the the mark making and then moving on to Dolomite, just made those more like 70s and had like a, a funky approach to those and kind of made them feel like they went with that setting. And so, Oh, that felt very authentic. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate stuff like that. Like when you can go through a, an experience where every individual stands alone, but all of them come together and kind of create the story. And there's no piece that is missing, you know, like they all kind of relate. I enjoy that. Ruth, what are some of your favorite costumes featured in this exhibition? Oh, I have, uh, I, I walk through the exhibition and I have lots of memories. And so they're all my children, so I can't really pick a favorite. But with the exhibition itself, there are, there are highlights, like uh, the hand-painted T-shirt that Radio Rahim wore in Do the Right Thing. You know, it just reminds me of the creativity in Brooklyn and, you know, the the cultural Afro culture that is alive and well in Brooklyn, especially when I was there doing that film. And then as we travel through, I, you know, see a lot of tidbits of things that I added to, you know, uh, costumes to tell a family story, the indigo blue of Kunta Kente's costume just, you know, reminds me of, you know, how we harvested uh, indigo in Africa and telling that story and keeping that blue as a through line throughout all the costumes and roots and and having dressed Anna Paquin for Amistad when she was, you know, 13 and then also having another dress when she's 40 years old in uh, roots, it's uh, a connection of, you know, me having you know, generations in my work and, and, you know, people who have become a part of my film family and Oprah, uh, you know, Oprah as an actress, you know, really trusting me and, you know, giving me the opportunity to dress her character, not only in Selma, but also in the Butler and, and to have those here representing, you know, her costume. They all become a part of some of my favorite stories. Oh, I'll bet. I am in awe of her. When you start to make a costume for a film, how much creative freedom do you have? Well, I always say I don't want to be on my own island when I'm designing costumes. It's a highly collaborative work, but sometimes I walk into a room and I have Black Panther pasted on my forehead or I have Oscar winner, you know, as I walk in and people go, you know, what do you think, Ruth? And I go, let's collectively talk about it. Let's be uh, together because my costume goes on a set. It's lit, lit by a DP. There are a lot of uh, factors to making this a successful costume. So that I'm not dictated to per se, because people think, you know, people want me to bring ideas to the table and, and have the freedom to be an artist. 
but you know, we are collaborating. So I have to listen to what the director wants for the storytelling. Okay, so the director sets forth the parameters. Yes, he sets the tone that everybody collaborates on to accomplish it. Okay. What advice would you give young African-American costume designers in particular trying to forge their own path in this industry? I have a story I tell. Um, I met an editor who was uh, the, one of the youngest editors to ever win an Oscar for one of his projects. And I met him and I said, you know, you know, very early in my career, like at the very beginning. And I said, you know, how, how does it feel? My God. And he said, just keep going and you'll get one too. Aww. So that's my advice. Just keep going. Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter, joined by Atlanta-based artist Brandon Sadler. The exhibition Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in Costume Design, is on view in Atlanta now at Skadfash Museum of Fashion and Film. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.